Amen. Dear friends, despite our circumstances, I want to tell you that I'm encouraged. I want to tell you that the Lord, that I'm assured that the Lord is working. It has been so encouraging seeing so many of you posts online, your testimonies on social media. I love that. In this age of separation, we can still testify of the grace of God, and, and this church is doing that. I'm so thankful for that. And Catherine was running recently in the Gulch, and she told me that she saw that someone had written on, with chalk on the uh, sidewalk, our church web address, cbcpeer.org, and also inviting people to join our Good Friday service and our, this service, our Easter morning service. I'm thankful for that, and I'm encouraged by that. The Lord has said no to our request to him that we would gather corporately. There's not many of us here. We are not gathering corporately, but praise the Lord that he is still at work. And we, we continue praying for the Lord's work through this time in a unique and interesting way. I know that he will work, and he promises in his word that he will. So, dear friend, I'm encouraged. And first and lastly, the reason why I'm encouraged is that Jesus is risen from the dead. Regardless of what happens to us, that truth can never be taken away. And that is why we join, that is why we gather, that is why we live as Christians, is because of this great message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though we are sinners, God provides for us forgiveness in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And this morning, we're going to be expounding that in further detail. If you're a visitor joining us this morning, we welcome you. And I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have one, open up your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, 33. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a tremendous passage of hope, of truth, and also of something that even non-Christians can agree with Christians about. This is a wonderful passage, John 16, 33. These are the words of Jesus. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Our passage is going to be this last sentence. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Three excuse me, excuse me, three points for you. I have two points of observation, of theology, and then one point of application. For our first point, if you're taking notes, which I hope you do, we want to be students of the word. If you're taking notes, write this. Very simple. Life is hard. Life is hard. And I get this point from what Jesus says right at the beginning. In the world, you will have tribulation. 
Now, this word tribulation is an archaic English word. We don't really use it that much outside of church contexts. It's not a word that you'd hear on the streets. So we have to understand what Jesus is saying here by this notion of tribulation. And what Jesus is saying here is very simple. In this world, in the world, you will have difficulty. You will have trial. I.e., life is hard. And Jesus is not unaware of the difficulty of life. He himself has entered into, by means of his incarnation, he has entered into the difficulty of the world. Jesus is very aware of life's difficulties. And these tribulations, what, whom Jesus is specifically talking to in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This passage in John 16, Jesus in the Gospel of John is getting, preparing his disciples for his departure. When Jesus departs, Jesus says to his disciples that trials will come. And as we know the history of the early church, the disciples and the apostles went out preaching the gospel. And the historic tradition, which is a solid historical tradition, is that these disciples went out preaching the gospel and lost their lives doing so. In the early church, there was tremendous persecution of Christians. And these disciples were being foretold by Jesus what to expect. What to expect whenever he departs and dies and rises again and ascends to the Father. What the disciples should expect in the road ahead. But what Jesus says here is applicable to us as well. He's making a general truth, a general observation regarding the difficulty of the world. This life is hard for Christians and for non-Christians. To be a Christian is not to be taken out of this world. To be a Christian is not to get a free pass through all of life's difficulties. Suffering and difficulty are part and parcel of the Christian life, specifically persevering through difficulty and trial, persevering through pain and misery. That is essential to the life of a Christian. And Christians are no different than anyone else. Christians experience a myriad of temptations and trials. Anyone who tells you that you're going through something difficult because you lack faith, that is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that God produces in us great acts of faith through difficulty. That it is the difficulty itself that God uses to produce in our lives faith. Difficulty is, is a common experience of Christians. And to just kind of put some specific words on this difficulty. Listen to all these types of difficulty that Christians experience. Depression, cancer, trauma, abuse, death, losing your spouse, losing a child, singleness, infertility, anxiety, depression, insomnia, rape, loneliness, sickness, poverty, failure, criticism, physical pain, rejection, meaninglessness, temptation, ongoing sin and its consequences, getting laid off from work, divorce, being a single parent, being victimized, Stress. You could go on and on and on. I'm just trying to label some of the difficulty that we have. 
And this isn't just for Christians. This is non-Christians too. We all experience tribulation. Jesus is making a general observation about the world. If there's one thing that you can bet on in life, it's on difficulty. This life is hard. And I want you to notice the verb here. Jesus says, you will have tribulation. And while Jesus is referring to the future suffering the disciples will go through after he ascends to the Father, the verb here is actually present. The verb here is actually present. And what that means is that tribulation, difficulty, is a general characteristic of the world. This is a general truth. No one, no one is immune to difficulty. No one is except, there's no exceptions here. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how educated you are, how poor you are, how uneducated you are, whether you're strong or weak, whether you're born in a good family or a bad family, it doesn't matter. This is universally true. But Jesus specifies something here that's worth noticing. Jesus begins this statement with a prepositional phrase. Jesus specifies that the suffering is located to a specific place. Jesus says, in the world here, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus does not say, you will have tribulation forever in every place. Jesus' statement is specific to, quote, in the world. And what Jesus is referring to here is the current order of things, the current administration of God. But this isn't the only world that has or will exist. The Bible teaches that prior to sin, there was a different type of world, a world without sin, a world without the consequences of sin. And also, in the future, the book of Revelation specifies that there's coming a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. And what Jesus is saying is that suffering and difficulty are not in the world of the past nor the world of the future. But in this world, this world, the current experience that we have here, but this is not how it has always been. There is coming a time for the Christian when there will be no more tribulation. But in this world, in the in-between world, in the world that is in between the pre-sinful world and the world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth, in this world, our current experience is one of difficulty and trial and suffering and pain. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's the first point. Life is hard. Now the second point. Write this. Jesus conquers. Jesus conquers. I get this point from what Jesus says at the end of verse 33. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Now this, world, this word overcome, 
a better way to understand it would to be conquer. I have conquered the world. I have overcome the difficulties that it presented to me. And I have conquered these forces of evil. That's what Jesus is saying. And the forces of evil are many. They were many. There were many forces that opposed Jesus in his earthly ministry. First and foremost, what it is that Jesus has conquered is our sin. Jesus has conquered our sin and our guilt. A good way to understand what it is that I'm saying, listen to this passage from 1 John 2.15. The author says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What it is that Jesus has conquered, what it is that Jesus has overcome, Jesus specifies in this passage as the world. Now, Jesus is using this word world differently at the end and the beginning of verse 33. Whenever Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, he's referring to the sphere, the place where tribulation, where Christians and non-Christians experience tribulation. But whenever he says he has overcome the world, he's referring to a specific evil entity. He is referring to those powers that oppose the work of God in the world. And this passage in 1 John is very helpful for illumining what Jesus is saying. In this 1 John passage, you have sin, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus first and foremost came, dear friend, because of our sins. Jesus came to conquer our actions and the consequences of those actions. Jesus came to conquer our sinful natures. We are born, the Bible teaches, opposing the work of God. And that, that sin nature, is part of the world. Jesus has come to conquer it. Now, there is more to this world than just our sinful decisions and our actions and our sinful nature and its consequences. There is also, which I, as of this point in, in my tenure here at CBC, I haven't spoken routinely about this. But in this world, in this evil world order, there are demonic forces. There are forces, not just visible like us, but there are invisible forces as well that oppose the work of God in the world, that opposed Jesus, that Jesus overcame. Specifically, the Bible gives a specific name to one of these demonic forces, and that is the devil, Satan, the adversary. Now, the Bible also teaches that there are more, there's more than just one devil. There's a capital devil, a capital D devil, but there's also small devils. There's demons, and the Bible teaches that they are all around us. Their activity, though we cannot see it, is real. In our modern age, we tend to find things that are undetectable and invisible 
as difficult to believe in. But you cannot understand the world without this notion of demonic forces. And you cannot understand Scripture and the plan of salvation without this notion either. There are forces in this world that oppose the work of God. And what Jesus did in his crucifixion and resurrection, what Jesus did is he overcame these forces. He conquered them. This was made evident to me this morning. I saw a wonderful picture. A wonderful picture of this. Now, this is just a picture. This isn't real. But it helpfully illumines this point of Jesus conquering the forces of the devil. This picture was of Jesus' descent into the abyss in between Friday and Sunday, in between two days ago and today, on Saturday. And in this picture, the Old Testament saints are lifting their hands and praising Jesus. And Jesus is walking in front of them with his hands raised as well. And from the picture, you can tell that he is walking in victory. And if you look underneath his feet in this picture, what you see is you see a skull. And Jesus is stepping on this skull. And this skull represents the devil. In Jesus' resurrection, what he does is that he crushes the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says that. In the very first chapters of the Bible, Jesus' victory over the devil is, for, is foretold. And in this victory, what Jesus does is he overcomes the devil and his powers and his minions, and he crushes them. He metaphorically steps on the devil's head. Jesus overcomes the world. And dear friend, what this does for us is it should re radically reorient our perspective in life. Yes, we do recognize that in this world you will have tribulation. But more important than that sober truth is the truth of Jesus' victory over your sins, over my sins, over this world, over the devil. And the way that Jesus has overcome the world, the way that he has done it, is by means of his love. What moved Jesus to come here was his love for the Father and his love for you. And that motive moved Jesus to become incarnate. It moved Jesus to live a life of obedience to, fa to the Father. Jesus earned for us the perfect righteousness that we can never earn for ourselves. Jesus became what Adam failed to be. Jesus became the perfect example of godliness in the world. He fulfilled the law. He kept the entire law. He was completely innocent. Not only was he completely innocent, he was completely good. And he submitted himself to the Father's will of dying for our sins. And what motivated him to do that was his love and his compassion. And he suffered in our place. He was passive in suffering. He underwent suffering and death for you. 
and the Bible teaches that his body was laid in the grave. And on Sunday, the Bible teaches that his soul reunited with his body and that he walked out of his tomb. And now he is not in the tomb. He is with his Father in heaven and he will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. That is how Jesus has overcome the world. By means of his love, his compassion, and empathy for you. Last point this morning. Taking again our cue from the Bible. Look again with me at verse 33. What is Jesus' application here? How does he want us to respond? Jesus, this is an easy passage to preach. Jesus tells us what he wants us to do. Look right here. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Take heart. What Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to acknowledge the difficulty of life. Jesus wants us to acknowledge the difficulty of life. You see that but prior to the take heart? Jesus is saying that yes, in this life, you will struggle. However, the end point of punctuation here is one of encouragement and courage and strength. Jesus says to take heart. This is what this verb means. To be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. To be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. This commandment, this command to us only makes sense in light of the truth of life's difficulties and also in light of the truth of Jesus overcoming the world. The difficulties of this world are real. We must acknowledge that. We must confess that. We must agree with Jesus here that what he says is true. However, we do not despair. We recognize that there is despair in this world, but we do not despair. Rather, we are fortified in our commitment to be encouraged, to be courageous, to be resolute that yes, life is hard, but Jesus is better. That's what Jesus is saying here. Be courageous, be bold. Be strong. Now, there's two tendencies in the sinful heart that prevent us from obeying this passage. There are two tendencies in the heart of man, sinful tendencies, that prevent us from obeying this passage. And those two tendencies are this. The first one is an irrational optimism. I'm still on my third point, take heart. There are two tendencies that lead us, that prevent us from obeying what Jesus says here. The first is an irrational optimism, and the second 
is a soul-rotting pessimism. Now, I'll start with this irrational optimism. Some people in life, some brothers and sisters, some dear brothers and sisters, have an optimism that cannot be shaken. And that is a gift. That is a gift to be able to hold on to hope regardless of how life is going. That is a tremendous blessing. I know many brothers and sisters here have that type of tendency, and that is a gift from God. Now, there is a danger to this as well, though. And the danger is this. Some people cling to their optimism as a way to avoid recognizing and embracing the difficulty of this world. Some people use their optimism as a way to avoid life's difficulties. Optimism can turn, can make an incorrect turn if we do not recognize and agree with Jesus here that in the world you will have tribulation. Many people, regardless of how they're doing, they'll have a smile and they'll tell you that they have hope. And brothers and sisters, amen to that. But we also have to be sober about the world. It is okay. And not just okay. It is good. If you're struggling in life, it is good to say in your heart, in your mind, and with your lips that in this world, I am having tribulation. It is okay to say that. And in the Midwest, I think this is specifically something of the Midwest. In the Midwest, we like to just keep a smile on. But really, we're struggling very badly. And if we do that enough, we're not agreeing here with Jesus. We have to recognize the difficulty of life and not run from it. Oftentimes, we don't voice it because if we do, we'll have to actually recognize that it's true. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, our Lord, is telling us in this life, there is difficulty. Don't run from that, dear friend. Don't run from Jesus' words here. Our Lord's opinion is what matters. We have to allow our optimism to be affected by what Jesus is saying here. Now, there's another error as well. So this optimism that never leads on to difficulty, that's what we want to avoid. But there's also this pessimism, this soul-rotting pessimism that no matter what happens in life, some people have a tendency towards being perpetually pessimistic. It's very difficult to be around these people, regardless of how life is going, and even if life is kind of difficult. They slouch their shoulders. You try to encourage them. They might roll their eyes. They might, they might insult you. No matter how good life is going, or either, either no matter how badly life is going, these people who have this deep-rooted pessimism are not joyful, and they do not take heart to what Jesus says here by, of taking heart. Rather than having hope and encouragement, they would rather sulk. 
and be self-pitying and ultimately be selfish. We want to avoid these two tendencies. The first tendency fails to recognize the difficulty of the world. The second tendency fails to recognize the hope that we have. And dear friends, I want you to notice, for those who are overly pessimistic, if you are a Christian, this command, this, this, this statement of take heart, this is a command. This is a command from the Lord Jesus himself that we have to be hopeful. We cannot be overly pessimistic in this world. And the reason why is because Jesus has overcome the world. And we have to have hope. We have to hold on to this truth. It is a command to take courage. It is a command here to be encouraged and to lay hold of Jesus and for him to be our sufficiency in life and to repent from this continuing spirit of self-pity and pessimism. The Lord calls us to take heart. And as I conclude this morning, I'd like to make a specific plea to the non-Christian. A very specific plea. Non-Christian, there is a lot that we can agree with each other about this passage. Specifically, if you're a non-Christian, I want to ask you this question. Is what Jesus says here, in this world you will have tribulation? Is that true? Is it true that life is hard? You're a liar if you say no. You have to agree with me here. We both know that life is hard. Jesus knows. Jesus knew that life is hard. So that is true. Secondly, is it true that you desire to be delivered from the difficulties of this world? It most certainly is. It is true that this life is difficult, and it is true that you're looking for deliverance from life's difficulties. Both of those things are true. We are all looking for hope. We are all looking for somewhere to hang our hat. We are all looking for something to base our life on and to put our trust in. We are all looking to do this. And I want you to see this morning the relevance and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows that life is difficult. He says it some 2,000 years ago. The world has not changed. He says that to you this morning. Life is difficult. And you feel in your heart that life is difficult. You feel the weight of life. You have these anxieties. You have this depression. You might have this self-hatred. And Jesus knows this. And what Jesus is saying to you this morning is in that reality of the difficulty of life and your desire for deliverance, Jesus comes in and he offers you his life. He offers you his death. He offers you perfection based upon what he has done for you. He offers you victory over your sins.
And Jesus says to you, what else are you looking for? I have overcome the world, and I offer you all of the benefits of my acts solely because I love you. Not because you earn it, not because you deserve it. You don't need religion. You don't need any work. All you have to do, dear friend, is to believe in and trust in that Jesus has overcome the world. And my prayer and hope is that you would take seriously the words of Jesus. You would contemplate them and that you would come to believe that they are true. Will you pray with me? Yes, Father, we, we say this morning, we say this morning that life is hard. We say this morning that Jesus has overcome the world. And Father, we pray and ask for your power that you would give us courage, strength, faithfulness, that you would cause our confession to be strong. And that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his overcoming the world, would move us to obedience. And Father, for the non-Christian, Father, that they would believe, that they would recognize the truthfulness of what Jesus says and the compassion and love of his invitation. Father, we pray that you would bring about salvation in the lives of sinners and that they would be able to look back on this day, this very odd Easter day when no churches are gathering, they would be able to say that despite the circumstances, God saved me that day. Bless your name, Father. May Jesus Christ be exalted. By the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.